on. Now today we are turning our attention back to the book of Acts. Let's open our Bibles. Everybody say word. And we're going to start uh, our discussion of Acts chapter 17 in Matthew's gospel. Uh, we'll be in the ninth chapter, uh, starting off in verses 35 through 37. This grabbed a, a hold of my heart this week as I was looking at the earthly ministry of Christ. And really, as we compare this to the ministry that is being undertaken in the book of Acts, the apostles and the disciples and the followers of Christ, all they did was pick up the baton. Okay, they just kept running. Jesus continued to lead and to guide and to move the church in and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, as we've seen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that dunamai spirit that came upon them to be his witnesses. Well, it all begins with Jesus. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, that is, of Palestine and surrounding regions, teaching in their synagogues. Who does that sound like? Where did Paul, where does Paul begin his preaching when he arrives in a city? In the synagogues, he's modeling the ministry as exemplified by Christ. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. So fascinating. He proclaimed the gospel of himself, of the kingdom of God, and he healed every disease and every affliction. That is speaking of physical, mental, emotional, psychological. And when he saw the crowds, this is fascinating to me, Jesus' response. Because when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. A deep sense of empathy. Because as he looked out over them, they were like sheep without a shepherd. What, what are sheep that have no shepherd? What do they turn into? Mutton stew. I mean, they're basically, they're wandering. They're lost. And then Jesus shifts a metaphor and he goes, okay, so look at the crowds. He goes, okay, guys, now I want you to focus. And he's talking to his disciples at this point. He goes, the harvest it's plentiful. The harvest of our culture is plentiful. Family, our culture is ripe for harvest. But there are very few laborers that are undertaking the work of harvest. And so Jesus told his disciples, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And when you pray earnestly to the Lord to send out uh, into the harvest laborers, guess what you become? When you're praying earnestly, you find yourself among the ranks of the laborers. And that's exactly what we're seeing unfolding in Acts chapter 17. So flip there in your Bibles. We know that they are undertaking their mission. They knew their mission. They were messengers. In chapter 16, it's articulated, God had called them to preach the gospel. That was their mission. That wherever God sent them, they were to preach the gospel. I will argue that is our mission today as Christ followers. Our mission is to preach the gospel, to take the good news, and to watch as God powerfully heals. And so we're now in the second missionary journey of Paul and friends. Paul, Silas, Timothy, possibly Luke joins the ranks. Here's a map. We remember it started, the second missionary journey started in the city of Antioch. Barnabas and John, after the fracture between Paul and Barnabas, they sail away. Paul heads north with Silas picks up Timothy in the city of Lystra. They make their way to Troas, possibly where Luke joins the missionary journey. They have this great vision from God of the Macedonian man saying, come, help us. 
And so they sail away into Macedonia, which is present-day Greece. They go to Neapolis. They stop in the city of Philippi. That is where the gospel powerfully transforms lives. We see it in the life of Lydia and her household. God opens her heart. We see it in the life of the slave girl who had a python spirit. She's delivered, the Holy Spirit then filling her. And then we see God powerfully working through Paul and Silas in prison. In the 12th hour, in the midnight hour, they begin to pray. They begin to sing. And, dude, the earth shakes. Doors swinging wide open, and the jailer comes in and says, what must I do to be saved? He gives his life to Christ. His whole household gets baptized. The magistrates come with the tail between their legs saying, oh, hey, gee, we're sorry we beat you and all that and threw you in prison. We didn't know you were Romans. And so Paul and friends hang out in Philippi, and as we saw last week, they pop back on the Via Ignatia, the, the Roman highway, and they go to the city of Thessalonica, where over three Saturdays, Paul preaches the gospel. He reasons from the text. He explains. He proves. He proclaims. He reps the Lord. And there's a divided response. Some believe. Some reject. And out of jealousy, if y'all remember the acronym, Rhea Ia, they turn on him. They accuse him of speaking out against the emperor, really striving to have Paul put to death. And so the brothers... I love it, brothers and sisters. When the gospel is received, we become family. We're not just acquaintances bumping into each other here at some local church. We're family. Brothers and sisters. It's so cool. They get him out of Thessalonica, hop off the Via Ignatia. They go down to the city of Berea. And we remember last week, they were more noble. The reception of the gospel. They received the gospel. In fact, the Bible tells us they received it with eagerness. They examine the scriptures and they believe. That's why I told you all, you guys need to become a bunch of reavers to receive with eagerness and to examine the scriptures for yourself and you will grow in your faith. The Jews from Thessalonica made their way to Berea, stirred up persecution, and again, Paul had to flee. I think about this often now as I'm in the book of Acts. I'm like, circumstances often keep me from my mission. I allow the difficulties of the circumstances to keep me from my mission. I remember distinctly, as if it was like yesterday, a time when I was in seminary, and I was in a really cynical rut. I don't know if you ever get into cynical ruts, but I was there, man. I was bitter. I was frustrated and frictious. I felt like God had taken me that far to drop me. You ever been there? It's a great feeling, isn't it? I was just convinced. I didn't have a job. And it's really hard to pay your mortgage without one. And I was just like, everything's going to fall apart. I kept reading in the scripture, be still and know that I am God. And so I was frantic and, and I was being God. And then I was like convinced I wouldn't see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so Madeline finally one day just goes, would you just go preach the gospel somewhere? I think she just wanted to get me out of the house. That's probably true. You want to get me out of the house? Yeah, because I was funking up the whole joint. And so I go down to the local Rockwall Harbor. And, and I, as I get down there, there were hundreds of kids, hundreds of them. And it immediately hit me. It was like, they're like sheep with no shepherd. So I grabbed my guitar and I started going down there and I just start jamming and crowds of kids would come. And the gospel would be shared and God was just harvesting kids. And I learned it didn't matter about my circumstances, the mission Yeah, there's going to be difficulties in this life, but we can't stop being mission-oriented. God is constantly harvesting. So they sail. They get Paul out of Berea. 
because, well, they're going to put him to death. So he hops on a ship, and he sails all the way down to the city of Athens. He sends word back, hey, Timothy, Silas, I need you guys to come join me. And while he's in the city of Athens, he encounters something that provokes his spirit. And what's fascinating to me is that Paul, at this point, he ends up in the great city of Athens. And it's heyday, really. If Rome was the sword and the place of rule of the Roman Empire, Athens was her heart and her meditation. Athens is described as being beautiful, uh, as being uh, a place of, of antiquity, a cultural center. In fact, I quote here from R.C. Sproul, who writes this, Athens was perceived as the cultural center of antiquity. It was the city that housed the greatest contributors to knowledge and art, science, and political theory. Very much an influence even in the founding of our country. The city of Plato and Aristotle and, and Pericles and Salone, the average tourist entering Athens was surely overwhelmed by the magnificent beauty of the architecture and the numerous temples. In fact, we still go to the city of Athens to visit the ruins today. It was said sarcastically by one visitor, one ancient visitor to the city of Athens, that it was easier to find a god in the city of Athens than it was to find a man. Well, it was in this beautiful and influential city that Paul entered. He did not enter as a tourist like this particular person uh, who enters in. This is Cindy McCarthy. Cindy, right back here. Hi, Miss Cindy. Did you know that Kelly sent me this picture? No, you had no idea. Kelly and Cindy have taken a trip to Athens, and so we can thank them for our archaeological pictures this morning. Thank you, McCarthys. We appreciate it. Past few weeks, we've been borrowing from Taryn Dames, but now the McCarthy's. This is the, called the Agora. This is the shopping area, place where you can still visit today. It was a very common center meeting in the city of Athens. Paul did not, though, go to Athens to be a tourist or to stop off in the Agora. He wasn't there to go to the great temple of Athena that sits atop the Acropolis that is still able to be visited today. He wasn't there to go to the Temple of Athena. He was not there to go to the Ectheon, uh, the Erechtheon that was right across from it uh, with her awe-inspiring columns of chiseled maidens. He was not there to see them. He wasn't there to take in a show at the great Athenian theater where the Greek sagas were played out. He had come with the gospel. He had come with the true message of God, and he was overwhelmed by the unbelievable idolatry and paganism of the city that flowed. This place, this philosophical Mecca was stagnant. The city was beautiful but lost. Here's one, one uh, artist's rendition of ancient Athens. Here's your city gathering area, temple over here. This is called the Acropolis. This is the Temple of Athena. Over here would be Erechtheon. This would be your entrance. This right here would be the Temple to Athena and Nike. Any of y'all got some Nikes on this morning? First pair were made right here, uh, ancient Athens. And so Paul is in this city, and he's just overwhelmed that this, this temple, Mount Eric, casts its shadow over the whole city, the idolatry, lost. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, this text says, Now while Paul was visiting and waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. That Greek word could be either translated as angered or grieved. I don't believe he was angry. He wasn't angry with the people. He was grieved in his heart. Because they were lost. 
Within, with, he was provoked, he was grieved within him because he saw the city was full of, full of idols. These people wandering with no shepherd. So he gets to work. You know, I, I want to ask you, are you provoked at all? Are you grieved at all when you look at our culture? I, okay, for example, if somebody visited the United States, never heard of us, just came to the United States, first stop, they, they land... Well, let's say Dallas, Texas. That'll be cool. They land in Dallas. What do we worship? The great temple of Jerry Jones. You're telling me that is not a temple. Can you go back to that ancient picture of Athens? You don't think our modern day stadiums are this? We really don't think that. You ever been to a car dealership? You're telling me that's not a big, giant idol factory? We certainly bow down to them as a culture. We shine them up and keep them nice and clean, park them in our garages. That's basically where we house our altar, or that's our altar to our idols. We don't do this. Do you all see any correlation between Athens and, and us? Yes? No? Is this too convicting? Does it provoke your heart at all? Does it grieve you? The false worship that is rampant in our culture. We're lost. Our kids can't stop killing each other. Are you grieved at all? We can't stop killing our kids. the darkest time of our culture's history. We're not enlightened. We're lost. Well, that just got really real. But it is real. Does it grieve your heart? Does it grieve our heart? So Paul reasoned he starts repping the Lord. He's like, you guys need Jesus, man. So he starts, he starts reasoning and explaining, proclaiming and proving. He's in the synagogue. He's in the marketplace every single day. And what's fascinating, as he's preaching in the synagogue and in the marketplace to anybody who will listen, a couple schools of philosophers, a couple schools of thought, hear Paul talking. They start reasoning with Paul, and they're immediately like, this guy's a babbler. What's this guy talking about? In fact, the text tells us in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so just a little bit of context, you have two great schools of philosophical thought in Athens in the first century. You have the Epicureans, and they basically were all about pleasure within moderation because life really doesn't have any meaning, so eat, drink, for tomorrow you die. So just kind of have fun with it. Don't worry, be happy, like enjoy. Always within moderation, though. And then you've got the Stoics who are like, well, everything's pretty much out of our control. We're a part of this just mechanism, and nothing we, can, nothing we do matters. What will be, will be. And so we might as well just make the best of it. 
And so they were listening to Paul preach about the living God and about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some of them were like, this guy's just a babbler. I quote here from Howard Marshall, who writes this about the, the term babbler. Their initial impression of Paul was not favorable. They dismissed his contempt, him contemptuously as a babbler. The word designated a bird picking up scraps in the gutter and hence came to be used of worthless loafers, like the kind of person who today would pick up cigarette ends and smoke them, and also of a person who had acquired mere scraps of learning. And so he's, he's just a knucklehead. Others were like, well, that's interesting. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they assumed he was talking about two different uh, deities. Jesus as one deity, and then the resurrection is another deity. They're confused. And so they gather Paul up, and they bring him before the, kind of this council over Athens, and all the Athenians gather, and they gather at the Oropagus. In fact, the scriptures tell us this in verse 19. It says, they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things, some odd things, some confusing things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Fantastic. He has platform. In fact, some would say that he delivers his sermon from a great platform called the Oropagus or Mars Hill by the Romans. This is a picture of the Oropagus. This is taken from the Acropolis. I know you're all tracking with all this. Anyway, here's the big out rock outcropping that people would often deliver messages from and crowds would gather here. I don't believe that's where Paul delivers this message. I believe he is taken before a council called the Oropagus. And I quote here from the, the net notes to describe a little bit further. The Oropagus does not refer so much to the place that is that rock outcropping, however, uh, as to the advisory council of Athens known as the Oropagus, which dealt with ethical, cultural, and religious matters, including supervision of uh, education, controlling many visiting lecturers, yada, yada, yada. Thus, this could be translated the council of the Oropagus. And so Luke gives us this interesting parenthetical little note about this council and then the people he's about to deliver this message to. So he's taken before the council, and then Luke tells us, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so in that little description, we hear that, that this people, they, they had their ears tickled by new philosophies or new products or new teachings. They completely rejected absolute truth, and so they were open to everything. And as I read about that, I'm like, that's kind of like us. As a culture, we reject absolute truth. We're excited about the new and the novel. Like, we get caught up in things like, is the dress blue or is it white? Or do you hear Laurel or Yanny? It's definitely Yanny, by the way. <laughs> if you hear something else, your ears are broken. I'm sorry. We get stoked on the new iPhone or the new Galaxy or the new Lexus or this new hair serum that's coming out with avocados and licorice and hibiscus crumbs and, and like the new tech companies and this incredible new app. And we're like, new, 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 new. Why? Because we have nothing to grab a hold of. We've rejected absolute truth, and it makes sense because you've got this one group says that they're preaching absolute truth, and this group saying they preach absolute truth, and this group is absolute truth, and this group's absolutely crazy, and so we just go, we dismiss it all, 
There is no truth. All we do is live for today. And we become either an Epicurean where we feed the flesh or we become a Stoic where we starve it. And so Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus, verse 22. He said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. And he wasn't being snarky. He's being honest. They were very religious. There were idols and temples everywhere. In fact, Paul continues, he says, For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. It's like I took in the temples, the altars, the idols. And he's all, interestingly enough, among all of the plethora of idols and temples, there is one particular idol or altar that caught my attention. And it was a particular altar. It wasn't grandiose by any means, but it was, it's kind of like the just-in-case altar. It's like the hedge our bets altar. And it was, it was called to the unknown God. And so there was this altar and the inscription in Greek was to the unknown God. And there it sat. And Paul's like, what you worship as unknown, I'm about to proclaim to you. So he uses an illustration from their own culture to connect them to the message he's about to bring. We do the same thing when we take the message to the culture. What you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. And what I find interesting about that is we have the hedge our bet approach in our culture too. Because people today, they're like, I, don't, I reject the God of the Bible or like, like this God who like is over things or has this like desire for us to be holy or some standard or whatever. Maybe a benevolent God, maybe of my crafting. He's the guy in the sky. You know, I hear people tell me all the time that there's, well, there's certainly something greater than ourselves. Did you know sociologists will tell us that every single culture on earth has some concept of a higher being? Don't you find that odd? Paul's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to proclaim to you who, the, who this unknown God is. I'm going to, in clarity, here he goes. Verse 24, he says, the God who made the world. Well, who, who is he presenting God to be at first? He's the what? He's the creator, okay? The God who created the world and everything in it being Lord over it. So he is created and he's over it. Like he's the master over it all. And he doesn't live in temples made by man. Can you imagine? He's standing before the Oropagus. He points up to the Acropolis and goes, God doesn't live there. goes on to say in verse 25, he says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. And as Paul walked along in front of all of these altars and shrines, there would be offerings left to these different gods. One time I was in a restaurant, no joke, there was an, like an altar set up and there was a bag of Cheetos in front of it. And I was like, that's weird. It's a weird offering. And so I asked the lady, I was like, why are there Cheetos in front of the altar, and she described that that particular altar or shrine to whoever it was, like, appreciated things that we appreciate, so she gave her, him her Cheetos. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with that. I was like, your God eats Cheetos. The Cheeto God. And I'm not making fun. I was just heartbroken. I was like, that's your God. And then I was like, what, is he like Funyuns? Is he Cool Ranch? I mean, I kind of like the Cool Ranch guy. 
is heartbreaking. He doesn't need stuff from us. Listen to this. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You have life because he's given it to you. You have breath because he's given it to you. That breath you just took, that beat your heart just did, he gave you that. We don't give him anything. He doesn't need something from us. He goes on to say in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. He's going to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, by the way. Who is he talking about? Who's the one man? Who? Adam. Not only did he create the atoms, he created the Adam. Y'all can use that later. So what I find interesting here, through one man and one woman, all of the people of the nations have descended, and throughout history, God has allotted periods, times, and boundaries. So he's like, God's over everything. We think we draw the lines on the map. And here's something interesting. We actually have the audacity to think that we can make America great. Think about that for a second. It's God who allots. It's God who appoints. It's God who sets boundaries. The arrogance to think we can make anything great. You know what we make everything? Broken. By the way, that's not a political statement. Although some of you are thinking it is, it isn't. I really wish we could grasp that we are a nation under God. Because you know why God allots and appoints and sets? So that we would do one specific thing. That we would seek after him. In fact, that's what Paul says. He has done all this. Why has God done all this? That they, humanity, should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. That phrase, feel their way, it basically is translated like, they, like we as humanity, we grope in the darkness after God. Yet, he's not that far away. It's, he's not far from each one of us. Paul's like, humanity, we're all grasping for some, some form or essence of God, but he's like right here. In fact, I quote here from the New Illustrated Bible, it says this, we grope for him by creating images to worship, whether they're pieces of stone or personal pleasure or cars or houses or big giant stadiums. Without a definite revelation from God, we're going to continue to worship such gods. Without revelation, we're going to continue being idolaters. That's just what humanity does. Humanity worships. But Paul points out that God is not far away. We can have fellowship with him. And in fact, Paul starts quoting their own poets. He goes, hey, check this out, guys. Even your own poets are talking about God. For in him we live and move and have our being. I told you you'd find that out. Isn't that cool? Y'all don't have no idea, but that's Steve and I, the band, we all get it. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He's like, look, even your ancient writers are groping, alluding to this God. It's kind of like the brand new hip-hop song by Drake, God's Plan. You know what I'm talking First service, nobody knew. There were like three people who had heard of Drake. 
I'm hoping the average is a little higher or this illustration falls flat. Anyway, it's a hip-hop artist. Some of you are like, I've never heard of Drake. But he wrote a song called God's Plan. It is the second song in history to be streamed over 100 million times in a single week. You tell me our culture's not looking for God? They're clicking on the song called God's Plan. And in the middle of the song, he goes, God's plan, God's plan. I can't do this on my own. None of us can. We need a savior. And so Paul's like, look, I'll quote your poets or your hip-hop artists. In him we live and move and have our being. He's not far away. Drake's like, hey, I can't do this on my own. And then Paul gets back to the message. He's like, you're God's offspring. We shouldn't think of God, this divine being, as being gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Higher criticism will tell us today that it is man who has created the thought of God or it is man who has created the concept of God or it is man who has crafted religion. And let me set this record straight. It is God who has created man. Not the other way around. And then Paul says, verse 30, times of ignorance are over. He says, God is overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What does that word repent mean? It is highly confusing when people are driving along and they see that guy with a sign that says repent. Because what they're thinking, what people see that is, you wretched sinner. But what Paul is saying to them is turn, turn away from this false temple and that one and that one and all of those idols. Turn away from that philosophical school of thought that is death. It's just hedonism. You're feeding your flesh. Turn away from that philosophical school of thought that is essentially starving your flesh, but it's death. Turn to the living God. Because, verse 31, he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. He's like, this Jesus who died for the world's sins was buried and he is risen and he's going to return. And the door of salvation and the door of belief is wide open. Until he returns and that door shuts and we are held accountable for our own righteousness. If our righteousness is not found in Christ's righteousness, we will stand alone in our own. What do you think the response was by the Athenians that particular day? Oh, we don't have to guess. It's right here in the text. Verse 32, it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some still do, by the way. Wait, 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 <laughs> You're telling me you believe that Jesus physically died, was buried, and then he like got back up? <laughs> dead people don't get up. They don't rise. You're telling me you believe that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead? Yes. Yes, I do believe that. And my belief doesn't make it true. It's historically true. He has risen. What we do with that, entirely up to us. We can reject it. We can mock it. We can laugh at it. We can malign it. Uh, oh, if we could just believe it. 
others politely, I don't think genuinely, but they're like, oh, we'll hear about this again. Hmm, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> but then there was a group, there was still a harvest. The gospel is proclaimed, God opened hearts. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined and believed. Among also were that guy, um, the Arapa guy. For some reason, the names today are just not working for me. And a woman, mm, Damaris, just guessing, and others with them. Apparently, those were well prominent people in the city. One guy was on the council of the Arapagus. And others, and they believed, and they began to follow Paul. But here's my question. Where did the rest of the people go? What did the rest of the Athenians do? We see that there was a harvest among some of them, but where did the others return to? Back to the temple of Athena. They went and got another pair of Nikes. They went back and hung out with the Epicureans and the Stoics. And you know what's fascinating? We visit the ruins today. Their temples are decaying. Their gods are dead. The philosophies lead to death. Yet still the gospel is proclaimed. And there will be a day when archaeologists will come and they'll excavate our ruins. Our temples will be decayed. Our gods will be dead. The gospel Will still be proclaimed. A few applications for us. Next week we're at the city of Corinth, uh, which is, I'm excited about. Uh, great church is born next week. We'll see that. But let's first talk through how do we apply this. First, groping for God. That's 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 where our culture is at right now. We live in a culture where people are groping for God in the darkness. That's no mistake. That is why our kids are killing each other. That's why we can't stop medicating. Our world is darkness. I really don't know how else to describe it. I mean, when you look at our culture, what do you see? You see life? You see abundant life? I see desperation. I see Friction and conflict and division. Hatred. I see emptiness. I see a culture that is in darkness. And I I just think to myself, I'm like, God, why don't you send light into the world? Is there light? And if there is light, who might that be? I wish the Bible would tell us something like that. Oh, wait. You are the light of the world. Who's he speaking to? Who's Jesus speaking to? Speaking to us. He says, you who live in a culture of darkness, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light so shine. But for some reason, as a, as a church culture, we have forgotten one of our principal purposes for being in the culture. We are the light. We are to radiate. To bring clarity. Family, don't hide. You are bringing a message of the only hope we have. Second leads, I mean, right into the same thing. And it's the laborers are few. God said, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers. We're the laborers. It seems, it feels like, I don't know if this is true. I haven't been in the church very long. Who has been in here, who's been in the church the longest? How many of you have been believers for 40 years? Is it a 40-year believer? 50? Over 40? so, So some of you have been in the church a long, long time. Okay, I've, I've been a Christ follower for about 17 years, so I, don't, I can't really make this statement. But does it feel like the church has lost her urgency when it comes to the harvest? Does it? It feels like to me that we've lost some level of urgency when it comes to the harvest. The the fields are ready. You know, like our neighborhoods, offices, grocery stores, soccer teams, block parties, family gatherings, that's a harvest. Somewhere along the way, we have forgotten that we're the laborers of the culture. And so I'm just going to ask, pray this week. Consider this week. Pray earnestly, like, God send laborers. And you know what might, might happen as we pray earnestly? What might we become? Laborers. And we start looking at our, around and we go, oh, I'm here to harvest. Very cool. And then finally, I'll end with Drake. God's plan. I read over the lyrics, interestingly enough. I mean, I've heard the song multiple times. I felt like I would read the lyrics. And I'm like, okay, so if you're going to tell me what God's plan is, I'm going to read your song. And, and I read over it, interesting. Apparently, God's plan is wealth, women, tats, and Trump and his haters. You know, as I read it, I was like, this isn't God's plan at all. A hundred million plus people are looking for God's plan and they click on a song and he says it's going to be God's plan. It sounds like it's Drake's plan. So I want to make sure that you, this is clear this morning. You are here and to you who are watching on Facebook, the time of ignorance, that's in the past. You can never from here on out claim you've never heard. You'll never be able to walk out of here and go, oh, I've never heard. There is a God, the true God. He created heaven, the earth. He's Lord over it all. He's given each one of us our life, and he gives each one of us our breath. He has done everything so that we would seek after him. Man has continually rebelled. We grope in the darkness, even though he is 
here in spirit and in presence. He is everywhere. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he has risen from the dead. He is physically resurrected and is alive right now. And the Bible declares that all who believe in him, all who trust in him, will be saved. Commit to him. Don't go back to the temples and the idols and the philosophies that are being peddled in our streets like they were in the streets of Athens. They just end in ruins. Give your life to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. I'm grieved for our culture. I'm grieved because I know that it's darkness. But I'm not grieved as one who has no hope. I know that your message, your gospel is the only hope we have. I pray that you would fill us as a church with a sense of urgency, with a sense of passion. A sense of humility, a willingness to set down our idols, to follow you. May we be your laborers. If you are here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible declares that you are separated from God. The Bible declares that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross. He was buried and he's risen from the grave and is alive right now. The Bible declares if you trust in him, his death, his burial for the payment of your sins, you tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe you will be saved right where you sit. You woke up this morning separated from God. You can put your head down on your pillow tonight alive in Christ. You want to receive Jesus as your savior. In the quietness of your heart, tell him, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried, and I believe you've risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is truly your heart's prayer, the Bible declares you've just passed from death to life, from blindness to sight. You are forever a child of the living God. Welcome home. May you continue to open hearts, our God of the harvest. Please save our culture. We are literally dying without you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Heavy. Sometimes heavy's good. Are you doing Drake's song back there? What are you doing, Art? God's playing, God's playing. What's going on? Oh, I know what you're saying. I got to do this first, though. All right, well, it's time. If you're interested in being baptized, we'd love to meet with you up front. But for the rest of us, it's time for us to go into the world in peace. Have courage.
You're going to need it. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all to meet again, same time, same place next week. And do not forget, family, you are loved. Now go tell the rest of the world that they are too. But before you go, tell everybody that they are.